This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Well, greetings, brothers and sisters in Christ. What a privilege it is to gather together this evening and study a portion of God's Word, sing songs of praise, approach Him in prayer, and do all that in fellowship together with you. Uh, This evening we're going to be continuing our study of the book of Colossians, and we're focusing on Colossians 2, verses 1 through 10 tonight. And here Paul continues his message on the all-sufficiency of Christ by juxtaposing that with philosophies of the world. So let's read what Paul had to say in this passage of Scripture. Colossians 2, 1 through 10. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love and into all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware. Lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Colossae and Laodicea were sister cities, and due to their close proximity, they were to share their letters. And Paul implies that both Laodicea and Colossae had not been evangelized by him in person when he says, as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Paul said that uh, Epiphras taught the church in Colossians 1 verse 7, and uh, he then uh, reported the circumstances of the church to Paul in Colossians 1 verse 8. Furthermore, in Acts chapter 16 verse 6, you'll see that... um, It tells us that Paul wanted to plan a deeper trip into Asia Minor, but he was forbidden to go there by the Holy Spirit. So all these pieces of evidence lead us to conclude that it's very possible he was never here in person. And I do believe that this explains some of why Paul said he had great conflict for them. He hadn't been there. They'd been taught by others. And he was receiving word of confusion and false teachers in their midst. So you have to remember, Paul took his charge to go take the gospel to the Gentiles very seriously. And uh, these churches, since they'd never possibly seen him face to face, it would be understandable for him to be concerned over just how firm their foundation in Christ was. But this also reminds us that even an apostle is just one man. And Christ has commanded that many men teach as they are so gifted so that the body functions properly. So you see, Paul may have wanted to be in Asia Minor, but he couldn't be in all places at once, and God had other plans for him. As a result, he wrote the book of Colossians and focused primarily on the believer's completeness in Christ, because if there was any one thing that Paul would want to shore up, it would be this idea. Now, verse 2 of our text tells us that Paul desired that their hearts might be comforted. 
Why did the church at Colossae need their hearts to be comforted? The answer follows immediately. He says, being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. Now, Paul, being a very educated man, sometimes can be a little difficult to understand. What he's talking about here is the assurance of salvation. And the Colossians were not at peace. Um, this lack of peace actually detracted from their ability to love one another and be fully committed to one another because they didn't have full assurance of their salvation. We know that because they were giving ear to false doctrines, teaching that there was more than just Christ that was needed to secure someone's salvation. And fear and doubt will drive a wedge between people. Colossae was not knit together in love as they should or could be because they weren't fully convinced that they represented a complete and saved body in Christ. They were too anxious to wield that agape or that reasoned and decided upon love that we studied before. Now, Paul hasn't yet addressed how he knows this or why he's come to this conclusion, but I do imagine that his immediately driving at this point probably pricked the hearts of the Colossians. And maybe it even caused them to be a little bit more willing to listen to what he had to say because he demonstrates here that his wisdom. He's not beating around the bush. He's not dealing with periphery issues. He's dealing with the very thing that they were probably most unlikely to admit they were struggling with. Are we really saved? So Paul, in his wisdom, doesn't deal with the need. Now, the need that they had expressed through turning to false teachers was maybe we need some additional knowledge than what we have, right? That's the need they think they have. Paul doesn't focus on that. He focuses on what I'll call the need behind the need that the Colossians themselves could have been unaware of. We're going to see that the Colossians at least entertain the thought that they might need additional wisdom and knowledge, and this left that opening for false teachers. But Paul understood that the reason why they felt that need was because of the need uh, behind the need, a greater need for assurance of salvation. That's important to remember. Assurance would bring comfort to their hearts. And that was the need behind the need. That's what Paul focused on. So there's a lesson here. If we're going to deal with a problem, especially a problem that someone else has, we would be wise to consider, we know what they're telling us they need, but let's examine and think on why they think they have that need. And that is probably truly the need you need to focus on. Now, uh, the Colossians very possibly may have felt some desperation over their doubts. Was Christ really the complete answer? Did they need something more? Uh, was his sacrifice truly enough for them? Or was it their responsibility to keep searching for additional details and, and things that would save them, you know, just in case? And I imagine that sometimes they ask themselves, maybe you've asked yourself this, can it really be this simple? Christ came and died, we didn't deserve it, and we put our faith and trust in him, and we obey him in baptism, and and that's, that's it? Yes, that's it. And that can be difficult for someone who does a little bit too much thinking, as you'll see when we get a little further in here. I want to ask the question tonight for you to be thinking about. It's a rhetorical question, obviously. Have you ever doubted your salvation? Have you ever questioned Scripture? Has the world ever put a case before you, some intellectual, that made you doubt everything, perhaps? Something that wouldn't depart from your thoughts, no matter how hard you tried. Such a seed of doubt 
It can grow like a tree by a foundation, the foundation of your spiritual temple. And just like at a house, the roots of that tree, if you leave it there, can crack your foundation. Now, Paul, he knew this very well, so he wasn't just a little concerned for them. No, he said he had a great conflict of concern for them. And this is why. Paul reminds them that God's purpose is Christ's purpose, and they have to get this in their head. God and Christ are unified. It's not as though you have God the Father and, you know, you got to be careful not to put too much emphasis on Christ because, after all, God is ultimately God the Father. Christ and God and the Holy Spirit, they're all united in the exact same purpose. You serve one, you serve the other. And Paul reminds them that God's purpose is Christ's purpose. They're united in that purpose. And that, is, that purpose is to shed all sufficient light on something Paul calls the mystery of God. Now, in Greek pagan religions, a mystery was more than what we refer to it today. It was a secret teaching that was reserved for a few spiritual teachers, gurus, however you want to look at it, who had been initiated into an inner circle. And they held on tightly to those secrets, and they did not want to share them. Gnosticism was about this. This idea that there is a way to spiritual enlightenment, it is specifically through special hidden knowledge, only a few people have it, and you must follow after them and be their disciple should you want to secure salvation, should you want that enlightenment. And so the Colossians were questioning, well, did we really get all of that from Christ? Now, this is the same mystery that Paul has just addressed in Colossians 1, 25-27. Paul says this mystery had been hidden for ages and generations, but now it has been revealed to his saints, to you and I. There is no longer an inner circle to which the average Gentile could get, not gain admittance. That mystery is for the first time Gentiles can have Christ in you, the hope and glory. And Paul says, it is Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see how... This all is a counter to Gnosticism. Not only does Christ have all the answers, but he's freely given those answers to those who were not part of the inner circle before. Friends, let me tell you something. If in your life you come across people who are going to give you the key to life, they're going to hold it close. They're going to say only they can know it. You're lucky if they share it with you and that you owe them some loyalty. You must seek after them. You must serve them. That you must uh, in some way... Um, prostrate yourself before their vast intellectual knowledge, that is not a person you should be seeking to follow. Nobody has secret knowledge. It is all laid out freely in the scripture. Christ revealed it all. It's all you need. Paul says in verse 4 of our text, And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Now Paul's getting to the heart of the issue here. Paul recognizes that because the church at Colossae is fearful, they don't know the whole truth required to save their eternal souls. That's what they're afraid of, that they don't know it. And because of that, they're vulnerable. I've got a quote up here from Winston Churchill. It says, fear is a reaction, courage is a decision. Fear is the opposite of action. It is the opposite of courage. It is the opposite of what God would have us to be. It's the opposite of Christ. It's the opposite of Christianity. Fear has no place in our lives. Not when we have rock-solid faith in Christ and God's plan for salvation. And 
the only way that uh, Paul was worried that this fear that the Colossians were, were entertaining in their heart about whether or not they'd done everything needed to be saved, he was worried about what it would make them do. And it's a, it's a simple truth that man will listen to all manner of things when they're afraid, when they're not at peace, isn't it? And isn't it true that when you're looking for trouble, you're always going to find it? Well, let me tell you, here's an equation here. Fear plus you equals trouble. And if you live in fear, you will find trouble. You will find more things to be fearful of. And that fear will drive you to frantically and erratically look and see what to do. You know, we see movies and there's a car accident that's about to happen, some high-speed chase, right? All of a sudden, time slows down. Or maybe you think about the Matrix and these people and they're fighting. All, you know, in this fight, action slows down. You see people, their feet are up in the air. It's kind of a never-ending cartwheel. That's not life. That's not how it goes. Your car doesn't slow down in an accident. Now, what happens? You're like, ah! And you, you flip out, and you end up causing an accident that may not have ever happened had you been able to remain calm. Fear does that to you. I remember one time I told you the story. I was driving on an icy road in England. There was a car in front of me. I didn't realize it stopped. I was going too fast. Went to slam on the brakes, turned the steering wheel. Car just kept going straight forward. And it was only when I let off the brake that all of a sudden the car jerked off in the direction that the steering wheel was pointed. And I learned a lesson that day. Sometimes in a fearful situation, the best thing you can do is not try to get an iron grip of control over a situation that is not within your control. And only then will it successfully resolve itself. And that is exactly what the Colossians were doing. They were in the middle of a potential accident. Paul catches them before it happens. And he says, release your grip on that steering wheel and it'll correct and you'll get back in the right lane. And here's what you need to focus your eyes on. Now, um, the word beguile is used here. And that word as used here means to misreckon, delude, or deceive. Think of it as warping someone's thinking or perception. Now, don't get the idea that a deluded person stops thinking. I know that it may be tempting to say a deluded person is a stupid person, and a stupid person is an unthinking person, and so on, but that's not true. A beguiled person, a deluded person, doesn't stop thinking and just simply follow another per person's lead. What they do, they're still thinking, only they are observing things through a dirty and unfocused lens. The very fact that they are still thinking but reaching incorrect conclusions is what makes it so difficult to change their mind. They think that they're following their heart and logic when in fact they are being taken advantage of, causing them to think wrongly and thereby be deceived. And when it comes to our faith, it is so simple. The moment that someone introduces complexity into our faith and it causes doubt in you, you need to... Ask yourself, am I being deluded? Am I being beguiled? Later in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, we see this word beguiled again. Only this time it's a different word, which means to defraud of a reward. Now the overall idea when you compile these two uses of beguile, when you take them together, it describes both what the false teachers were attempting to do and what their underlying purpose was in doing that. They wanted to confuse and mislead so that they could steal salvation from the Colossians. This is an important point for us to understand. You're gonna, if you recall, 
Brother Clint, when he did his study of Colossians, Colossians 1 verse 23, he pointed out the word if. Paul told the Colossians they were reconciled to God and would be blameless before them if they continued in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel they'd heard. Now notice, this does not say that we will be saved if we live a blameless life, but we will be saved if we remain grounded in our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, he remains faithful, true to his word and his righteous character, for he cannot deny himself. Just because we fall short in our obedience and commitment to Christ does not mean that God will change his mind about offering us the gift of salvation in Christ. He is just and faithful. He will still offer it. He has revealed the mystery of salvation. He will keep his mind fixed on the promise of salvation. But if we renounce and depart from our faith in him, then we're guilty of something called apostasy. And the term apostasy means an abandonment of what one has professed, a total desertion of or departure from one's faith, principles, or party. The act of apostasy is detailed in the Bible in 1 Timothy 4 verse 1. It says, But the Holy Spirit explicitly and unmistakably declares that in later times some will turn away from the faith, paying attention instead to deceitful and seductive spirits and doctrines of demons. Also Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 6 <clears throat> for it is impossible to restore to repentance those who have once been enlightened spiritually and have tasted and consciously experienced the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted and consciously experienced the good word of God and the powers of the age or the world to come and then have fallen away. It is impossible to bring them back again to repentance since, this is why, since they again nail the Son of God on the cross for as far as they are concerned, they are treating the death of Christ as if they were not saved by it and are holding him up again to public disgrace. So the writer of Hebrews and Paul, they're saying the same thing here. One can have become a partaker of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God, and then they can later fall away because they are beguiled, because they are defrauded of their salvation by deceivers, and they can make the decision to abandon their faith. And if they do that, that is what the if is applying to. If you never abandon your faith, it doesn't matter how pathetic a, lot, a Christian you are, how many times you mess up, God is faithful, he will not abandon you if you do not abandon your faith. It's as simple as that. Now, Hold on a minute here. Let's go back. I know this is a hard thing to hear for some people. I, I know a lot of people believe once saved, always saved. And it's just, there's some, tr the, the difficult thing about that is there is some truth in what they're saying. Once you're saved, yes, you potentially are always saved. But the Bible also speaks of certain circumstances where you can decide to abandon all of that. It seems unlikely for somebody who has truly submitted to Christ, who has truly tasted of his goodness. But this explains why Paul was in great conflict for the Colossians and Laodicea, doesn't it? Someone who renounces their faith in Christ, they trade it away. 
You know, I'm just, I, I remember talking about this after Phil's lesson, I believe, and I, I just struggle to think of anything. I mean, what in the world will you trade your faith away for? What is worth it? You know, a person who trades away their, their faith in Christ because they choose not to believe it anymore, you know, someday they're not going to be surprised as they're ushered into heaven. You realize that? You won't hear them say, Whoo, boy, who would have thought all that Jesus stuff was actually true? Good thing I hedged all my bets. This one actually paid out. I sure got lucky. No, you are not going to hear that. The only thing that such a person will hear is depart from me. I never knew you. That is what Scripture says. Apostasy is a deadly bet against your everlasting soul. And there is nothing that can share space in your heart with the hope that you place in Jesus. That is what Paul is saying here. Remember what Christ told the church of Laodicea? He said, because they were lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, neither committed or uncommitted, he would vomit them out of his mouth. Could have used any number of words. He used vomit. Spew in the Old Testament, but it means vomit. Doesn't sound like Christ is very um, eager to keep that type of person in his presence, does it? Those are Christ's own words. And so the message is you either commit to Christ or you don't. But don't delude yourself into thinking you can claim Christ as Savior and then look for insurance policies for yourself in other things instead of keeping your hope placed solely in Him. Christ will not abide that. A believer, a believer either places total faith and hope in Jesus or they place no real hope and faith in Jesus. If we have no real hope and faith in Him, the Bible tells us the following. Hebrews 11 verse 6, But without faith... It is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Paul was in great conflict for Colossae because he recognized they were in danger of falling to apostasy, since they had begun to fear that they might need more than what Christ had to offer. Now Paul tries to counter those false teachers sowing doubt and disapproval with encouragement and, and approval on his part. In verse 5 he says, For though I be absent in the flesh... Yet, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Paul is giving his stamp of approval to the doctrine that the Colossians had received from Epaphras. And then contrary to what the false teachers were saying, Paul assures them Christ is enough. He spells it out clearly to them. Verse 6 and 7. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Don't you change a thing, he says. You received Christ as Lord, so stay in him. Take root in him. Be built upon him as your firm foundation. Establish your faith like an immovable tree by the waters, or a strong tower on a solid foundation. Just as you have been taught, you continue to do and be thankful, be joyful, be filled with praise because you have peace with God. Live like it. There's no need to be filled with doubts and fears for your salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. No one and no thing can take that away from you as long as you don't abandon your faith in him. Now, I don't see this as Paul berating the Colossians in this passage. Rather, I see Paul encouraging them. This whole thing is a message of encouragement from Paul. 
Paul doesn't come across as angry. It's more like a loving parental figure, lovingly pleading with a child that he loves and cares for deeply. And parents, imagine your thoughts and intent were you to speak these next words to children you desperately love and who are moving beyond your protection. Verse 8, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Beware means to look upon something and perceive it. They are to see that the philosophy of men, see it for what it is, it is armed robbery. All this nonsense, intellectual stuff the world is constantly spewing that sows doubt in your heart, it's armed robbery. And spoil here means to plunder, a rich gain or prize taken in war. We're not talking about fruit spoiling, we're talking about the uh, armed taking of goods by the victor from those people in a war that they have uh, conquered. So my impression here of Paul is that he's not entirely convinced that the Colossians understand the gravity of their situation. Not only are they at war spiritually, but it is their church and it is each soul present there that are the treasure the enemy's trying to steal. He had to remind the Ephesians of this same thing. Ephesians 6, uh, 10 through 12, he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. If we aren't watchful, if we take our salvation for granted, if we are not rooted in and built upon Christ, then we may well fall prey to the devil's schemes and be plundered from the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. In this great spiritual war that we all find ourselves in, it isn't that Satan wants to steal our joy, as false teachers like Joel Osteen want to say. It isn't that Satan wants to steal our, steal our peace. It's not about us. Those are byproducts that Satan is happy to see us lose, yes. But Satan's real goal for his soldiers, these false prophets, is to steal you and to steal me away from God. We are the plunder. That's what Paul means when he says, Beware lest any man spoil you. It doesn't mean to beware lest Satan make you unhappy or insecure or poor or anything else. It means beware lest Satan steal you away from the kingdom of God entirely. As a, as a treasure is snatched away by an invader. Now, stolen from the kingdom of God? That's a disturbing thought. But Paul wouldn't give the warning if it couldn't happen. And first comes the beguiling. Then comes the spoiling in this spiritual war that we find ourselves in. So what were the false teachers doing to beguile the Colossians? Well, Paul already showed us their weapons of war. Philosophy, Gnosticism is one. Gnosticism followed the Greek philosophy that matter was inherently evil. Only non-physical spiritual realities were good. Hence, Gnostics did not believe that God created the world or that Christ came in a physical body. According to the Gnostics, there was an angel or a secondary God who created the material universe. And Paul corrected this error in Colossae by stating clearly that, no, Christ is the creator and the sustainer of all. He is the supreme head over the church and over all authority. 
One effect of Gnosticism was indulgence. This sort of Gnostic reason that since the body was evil and the spirit was good, then nothing done by the body could harm the spirit, so they gave in to every sensual desire. They denied themselves nothing. They believed that because they had God's grace and because the body was of no account, they could do whatever they wanted with their bodies. I can point to you many so-called churches today who believe that the grace of God enables them to live any which way they want. It's simply not true. The Apostle John dealt with this type of Gnosticism in 1 John, and so did Paul in 1 Corinthians. These people manage to take a simple concept, and they take it into obscurity, and they make it confusing. That's their specialty. And Paul called this vain deceit, empty deception, pseudo-intellectual babble is another way it's translated. Consider something called agnosticism. Um, Agnostic means without knowledge. A in Greek means without, and gnosis means knowledge. Hence, agnostic, without knowledge, it's specifically without the knowledge of something. This view is probably most common in our world today. You ask most non-Christians, what are they? A few will say gnostic, they don't know what it means, probably. And others will say, well, I'm agnostic. They also usually don't know what they're talking about, but the few that do... Um, they vacillate back and forth based on where they stand, based on their level of proven knowledge. Philosophically, agnosticism can be described as being based on two separate principles. The first principle is that it relies on empirical evidence and logical means for acquiring knowledge about the world, that is, the scientific method. The second principle insists that they have an ethical duty not to assert God exists, because we cannot support that claim through evidence or logic. That's what the agnostic believes. So an agnostic says they cannot know for sure either way, therefore it is immoral to say God either does or does not exist. So here's Brian's summary of agnosticism. It is a very arrogant view of one's own cognitive ability. The agnostic is saying that their capacity for knowledge of all things is perfect, so if they can't see proof and understand it unequivocally, then the thing cannot be believed. It totally discounts the idea that there are some things above the reason of man. It is extraordinarily arrogant, prideful, and at best, it is passively obstinate. That is why Paul calls this type of philosophy vain deceit. Someone says, well... You may be a weak-minded fool willing to entertain a fairy tale, but not me. If I cannot see it, touch it, taste it, smell it, and hear it, then I refuse to believe it. Now, such a person has a very high opinion of their wisdom and knowledge, don't they? Is there such a thing as a man with a perfect mental knowledge and wisdom? I mean, has there ever been such a man? The Bible actually offers a solution to this question. Look at what God says to Solomon. In 1 Kings 3, verse 12, he says, Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any rise, arise like unto thee. Solomon is, was, and will remain the wisest of all men. And even he didn't know everything. 
You read about his life and you'll think, man, how could he be the wisest among us? And if he is the wisest among us, what does that say about you and I? The way that he lived, the things that he did. You know, the kingdom of Israel split because of Solomon, not his son Rehoboam. It started with Solomon. But he was the wisest man that ever had lived before, was living during his reign, and is still the wisest man today. That's something to think about. And look at what Solomon had to say when he compared mankind's capacity for knowledge to God's capacity. Uh, Ecclesiastes 8, 16 through 17, When I applied mine heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done upon the earth, for also there is that neither day nor night seeth sleep with his eyes, then I beheld all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun, because though a man labor to seek it out, yet shall he not find it. Yea, farther, though a wise man think he know it, yet shall he not be able to or think to know it, yet shall he not be able to find it. The wisest man ever to live stated plainly that mankind will never, ever, ever be able to understand all things. Why? He is not God. We are not God. No man is God. And therefore, no man can ever claim that it has to pass their scrutiny, whether that be science whether it be a gut feeling, I don't care what excuse they give, there is nothing they can produce, nothing they can demand that elevates them to a position of God. They simply do not have the capacity to understand the things of God. And yet men lean on the accumulation of their own knowledge and make of it a religion in and of itself. That's why I said agnostics at best are passively obstinate. They're going to be right, they're going to be pacified, or they're going to play dumb and say that they can't know what's obvious in creation, as Paul said. <clears throat> Paul called all this the tradition of men, the musings of mere men. You want to be humble? Then every day remind yourself that you are a mere man. This misguided attempt to ratify the thoughts of men above the thoughts of God led to the second moral outcome of Gnosticism. Remember I said the first one was indulgence. The second one is asceticism. Ascetics reasoned that because the body is bad, it should be denied every pleasure. They hoped that denial of the body would elevate the spirit. Paul's opponents at Colossae were mainly ascetics. They found legalism alluring, and the strict Jewish laws meshed easily with their harsh, self-denying rituals. Paul warned his readers that such rituals are useless. They have no spiritual value. That's chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. And these traditions of men were meant to replace one's hope in Christ with a life of works, a life then which these people believed had the power to save them. It was all foolishness, Paul said. But this is a pattern plaguing mankind from the beginning till today. And, you know, the thing we have to remember is there is a power and allure behind these arguments. Because I'll tell you, you think about an ascetic, and you may be thinking about a, a monk living on his own out in a desert in a tower, drinking water, eating bread. What about those people that whipped themselves? You know, what kind of argument did you hear that's going to make you give your own self bloody lashes from a whip? I just don't get it. My point is, you can't discount these arguments because you get in front of the right person with these arguments and they'll convince you if you're not firmly grounded in your faith. 
All of this is the rudiments of the world, the elementary principles of this world. And it all shares the same thing in common. It's all in opposition to Christ. Philosophy and vain deceit after the, the uh, tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, are not and not after Christ. Let me just say, especially to, I, I feel like this is a message that we all need to hear, but young people in particular, <clears throat> you don't have to perfectly understand everything about Gnosticism, agnosticism, science, asceticism, Judaism, or anything else. You simply have to remember that you are for Christ. That's it. Verse 9, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. You stand firm on Christ. You are rooted in Christ. You are saved in Christ. Anything or anyone that would speak against him or his word, you do not listen to. You know, we live in a world of information and I'm convinced a lot of our problem with society today is that we've given the pedestal to all the town fools in the name of freedom of speech. Oh, it's, it's our right to have freedom of speech, and so we're just going to give a pulpit and a, a podium to every moronic idea and screaming, nagging voice that comes along. And isn't it true that it's always the loudest, most obnoxious, squeaky wheel that gets the grease? But you don't live that way. You don't even listen to it. You turn away from it. You close your ears to it. You don't dwell on it. You don't entertain it. You don't tolerate it in your life in any way. You choose Christ and accept that you can't, don't, and won't have all the answers, and that is okay. Because we're not God, but we know God. And we know that He understands and controls all creation through His Son, Jesus. So in conclusion... I want to just capitalize on Brother Phil's last lesson. He asked the question, what is worth your life? And I'll ask you because I know that um, this is a subject that makes people bristle. You start talking about who knows what and who's right, and whether they say it to your face or not, people get upset. So I just want to ask you, is knowing things worth your life? If it's keeping you away from Christ, is it worth it? Is a satisfactory philosophical or scientific answer worth your life? Is that vanity? Because that is vanity. Is that vanity worth your life? Is doubt and fear worth your life? What exactly is worth your life, your eternal life? If you haven't obeyed the gospel, if you don't have Christ, then you don't have eternal life. But if you have obeyed the gospel and turned back to the world, ask yourself if this old world is worth trading for your eternal life. Paul said our hearts can be comforted. We can be knit together in love as we enjoy the fullness of peace that comes from understanding the mystery of our salvation revealed in Jesus Christ. God is faithful, and if we persist in our faith, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our salvation is assured. Just remember that. So if you'd like to declare Jesus as your Lord and Savior and be baptized, or if you need prayers of the church... Uh, your life is worth too much to delay, so I implore you, don't wait. Come forward, have a seat on the front bench as we stand and sing the invitation song. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71, Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.